0: welcome everybody and welcome to the independent outlook coming to you from the independent institute in oakland california we're right across the bay from san francisco and we try and bring you an independent perspective an unusual perspective on the events of the day today we're going to talk about the ideologization of the k-12 curriculum some of the dynamics of looting and protesting in our era Um, maybe we'll talk a little about illicit hairstyling uh, and have some fun together. So um, let me uh, welcome everybody who's joined us through ThinkSpot and all of our friends around the country, we're glad you're with us. We really appreciate the partnership with ThinkSpot so much. Uh, And I'm going to be talking today with my two colleagues, uh, David Thoreau, welcome, David.
1: Thank you, good to be here.
0: Great to see you. And uh, Williamson Evers, Bill, glad to see you too.
2: Good to see you.
0: David Thoreau is the president of the Independent Institute, started this organization about 34 years ago. uh, And Bill Evers, of course, is the director of our Center on Educational Excellence. uh, And we are grateful to have uh, quite a wonderful team here. So let's get going on some of these topics today. Bill, let me just turn to you first. Um, A year ago, just about the time when you were joining the Independent Institute, uh, you made quite a splash with a piece in the Wall Street Journal about the first draft of California's proposed ethnic studies curriculum, so-called. And you know, you seem to have stirred up quite a tempest at that time. A lot of parents and other groups were concerned about it. Uh, They decided they would revise it, bring it back a year later, and now they've done so. So um, I thought, oh, surely they will please Bill Evers with their second second go at it. But I just saw your piece uh, published on Friday in the Wall Street Journal uh, telling us that, Critical Ethnic Studies returns to California. The state's new curriculum prefers victimization to minority achievement and Marxism to liberal values. Uh, give our participants a little overview of what this all is all about, Bill.
2: Well, th- this is not about including things about slavery or the American Indians in regular American history. This is a separate standalone course that in California, Uh, Students are going to be required to take a semester-long course in this in order to graduate. And so they're developing a curriculum for this. So, as you said, a year ago, I had a column in the Wall Street Journal entitled, California Wants to Teach Your Kids That Capitalism is Racist. That was an incendiary title, Bill. Well, they wrote the title, but it was accurate nonetheless. And... uh, So I went into the details of many of the things that were in this model curriculum. And so they toned it down some. As you said, they did send it back to the drawing board. But the basic concepts of it, which are a a mixture of vulgar Marxism and identity politics. Mm -hmm. So by identity politics, essentially you mean the flip of what Martin Luther King said. He said, We should be judging people by the content of their character. We should look forward to a society where that goes on rather than one in which they're judged by the the color of their skin. And the identity politics idea is we're always going to be judged by this color of our skin. Mm -hmm. We can never get out of this. Uh, and they want tribalism to be the fundamental building blocks of American society. And they, they don't think there's any real way to get out of it. So, And they want to teach this and embrace it. Mm-hmm. So that's the fundamental thing. My column this time uh, made sort of two points. The first was uh, that the, the people who have studied uh, studied I think studies itself say that you can get some boost to kids staying in school, kids, Getting working harder, getting better grades, if you don't make it all about victims and oppression and this sort of thing, but instead you look at the resilience of ethnic groups, the inner resources, the, the as- cultural assets that people have, which I can get into a little bit. Well, that
0: sounds fairly
2: positive. Instead of just all this stuff about suffering and woe and, and so forth, which is part of history, of course. And then the second part of my column this time was, look, There are things that economics can teach us, that uh, sociology can teach us, that political science can teach us about ethnic studies. And because these people that are designing these courses are so mired in Marxism and in this identity politics, they miss out on valuable things about the dynamics of interaction of racial groups, of ethnic groups. That would be uh, important as well as fascinating for the children to learn about.
0: There seems to be a kind of reductionism uh, in the perspective on American yes. history that's found in this kind of curriculum. Yes, like everything is seen through this one lens of Depends groups exactly. in power competition, oppressor oppressed relationship. Right. It's like it's like you're there's some light coming from history, but you're shining it through this lens, and the lens is so distorting that basically it lights the paper on fire underneath it, and there's no history
2: left. So, for example, the ideologists behind this think, oh, if you talk about an African-American inventor who succeeded, or a Mexican-American entrepreneur who succeeded, well, that's brainwashing the kids to think that you could succeed in America. Oh, that's Uh, supposed to be negative. But, I mean, yeah. And so, you can't say that the Irish climbed the socioeconomic ladder, or that despite being under conditions at one time or another where rooming houses and businesses said, no Irish need apply, uh, or Jews who had suffered the worst possible uh, mistreatment and persecution and mass murder in history coming to the United States and succeeding. You can't do that. What you should instead teach children is that Irish and Jews have uh, attained white racial privilege So now, so according to them, the Irish and Jews are part of the oppressive capitalistic class. Right. And, And so if you think about Koreans, Chinese, Japanese immigrants to the United States, early generations, they had various mechanisms like loan clubs, which are kind of financial cooperatives. And they, friends and especially family would pool money. And they would rotate who got the money to start new businesses. Mm -hmm. And it was an extremely effective, up from the bootstraps, form of self-help. Self-help, yeah. And, Mm -hmm. you know, if you look at Oakland today, if you look at the garment industry in Los Angeles, and any number of things, they're hugely affected by this upward climb of groups like this. And similar stories can be told about Black entrepreneurs. uh, Independent Institute has a book about um, Dr. Howard, who was a successful entrepreneur in the South, as well as a civil rights leader in the early days, Mm -hmm. Uh, and so...
0: Yeah, we published a book on that, David. I think you're kind of proud of that book, aren't you? Can you just remind us briefly?
1: Yes, and uh, the book's won a number of book awards, uh, and it's basically about uh, Dr. TRM Howard, who is a physician and an entrepreneur, as Bill said, and he was really one of the early organizers of the movement against Jim Crow and other rest- government restrictions on blacks. He organized boycotts, he had huge festivals, he then moved to Chicago, uh, did even more there. Uh, he he uh, mentored Medgar Evers, um, which is a whole long list of people who were influenced by him, but he was against government intrusions and manipulating of people based on race and that was his comment. i
2: I am no relative of medgar evers nor am i a relative of governor tony evers of wisconsin i was wondering that put put these facts on the table so speaking of books uh pretty nearly around the same time as the wall street journal ran this column uh independent institute put on its website a bibliography and annotated reading list that I pulled together. Uh, it's called a Crisis and Civil Rights. And part of it is about race and civil rights. And so people can find that on our website, independent.org. And in it, it, it points out a lot of things. And one of the things that I also point out in the Wall Street Journal is that envy figures a lot mm. in race relations. So the Jews were envied in Spain at the time of the Spanish Inquisition, in Germany at the time of the Holocaust. They had been emancipated. They were suddenly able to go into new professions, succeed on their merits in these professions. And people that were in an agrarian or aristocratic mindset and not ready for commercial society got envious. Who are these upstarts? And so, their idea was kill them, <laughs> you know? And yeah, so yeah, right. we we want to have envy is always with us. It's part of human psychology. The question is, is it cabined? Is it constrained? Is it, right. we, we have, we know from the 10 commandments that the problem of coveting other people's holdings, other people's possessions is a problem in human nature that has to be dealt with. And so as, as Helmut Schuck wrote in his book about envy, uh, some societies c- constrain it and channel it or whatever they do, but some societies emphasize it, allow it to run free and with horrific results such as the Holocaust and the Spanish mm-hmm. Inquisition.
1: Yeah. One, of the ir- one of the ironies also is Uh, The the Civil Rights Movement was organized to fight uh, Jim Crow, uh, which was adopted after the Black Codes many years earlier after the Civil War. And the Black Codes were prescribing what blacks could do uh, as far as professions, as far as where they could eat, where they could work, who they could marry, and so on and so forth. And those measures were adopted by progressives. And also,
2: they were they were a way. David is right that progressives and proto-progressives had a lot to do with this, but they,
1: well, they were adopted essentially because, um, in an open market, the incentives of business people is to make money and to sell as much of your goods and services as possible. So if you if you discriminate against some group, you're going to lose that business and others who compete with you are going to gain the business. Right. So capitalism actually has built into it incentives to fight against discrimination. But because of this, Jim Crow was passed to cartelize markets and he restrict to prevent, blacks from being to prevent competitive. prevent
2: blacks from competing. Exactly. That's right. Exactly. Exactly.
1: So one thing that many of the civil rights people uh, did not learn is this lesson. and. It's the same thing with apartheid. Apartheid was passed because of the fact that um, blacks were coming down for- Black
2: workers were going into skilled professions, doing specialized dynamiting and one thing or another. The only way to
1: stop them was to use government power Mm -hmm. based on race. But the point is that if you actually don't have these restrictions, the racial tensions disappear by and large. Mm -hmm. People are able to to progress, uh, to uplift themselves, and so on and so forth. And so what progressives did is they, they used the same um, prescription of race-based law um, after the civil rights movement, and then now it's taken to an extreme. And in South they, they Africa, won't admit, they, they can't really admit to themselves that maybe government power is the problem. In mm-hmm.
2: South Africa, the striking white supremacist socialist labor unions struck under the banner workers of the world unite for the white race that's right wow exactly and the british <laughs> the british executed a few of the leaders and on the gallows they sang the red flag Yes. Yeah. the sing yeah. the song of Re- british revolutionary socialism uh-huh. yeah i mean the truth is that
0: wherever there is a system where private property rights are secure where exchange is free Uh, and contracts are protected by law, there's a huge disincentive for racism. And yet, and yet this curriculum that the bureaucrats in Sacramento created basically tells students that uh, the capitalist system is the source of racism, whereas in fact history shows it's the antidote to racism. What's going on with these people?
1: They're they're basically enamored by this ideology. It's ideologically driven, and even though empirically, you can, historically, you can show that it's not true, the ideology is you know, a civic religion, and they buy into it, and they don't want to give it up. That's right.
0: That's kind of stunning. Well, um, you mentioned, Bill, uh, that there was... Um, Some of those interesting historical comparisons with the position of uh, the Jewish community in Spain back at the time of the Inquisition. Um, Fast forward now to California in 2020, uh, I understand from some of the things I read uh, that some of the Jewish groups in California were not happy with the recommended curriculum. Can you Mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about that?
2: Well, uh, so a lot of this was explicit in the version from last year where they had uh, extensive things about palestinian arabs and you know things that were kind of in the guise of anti-zionism or anti-israel but were really anti-jewish mm-hmm. now the state department of education took the, those lessons out except of course the part about jews and white privilege that i mentioned earlier yeah
0: right which is probably the, one of the curicu-
2: parts but the curriculum commission at least a number of the members of it want to put it back. So oh. the Arab, the Arab, make Arab Americans part of Asian Americans, and then put mm-hmm. in lesson plans and so forth. So we really haven't seen the final final on this. They did put in this law last Monday that they're not supposed to be inciting uh, ethnic hatred and ethnic prejudice in these lessons but you know the problem is that these ideologues think well uh, we're just, we're not inciting anything but the truth right when, mm. when we do these anti-semitic things right so they don't right. view themselves as doing anything objectionable they're just presenting the facts of course they're not they're not they're telling the truth there they are inciting racial hatred I mean, basically, so, uh, and, and this thing about envy that I mentioned is another reason to mention a book published by the Independent Institute, because the uh, Independent Institute has tackled this in a book called In All Fairness, uh, a fairly recent book. And David is pointing... Which I happen to have uh, a copy uh, here of right here. Worth <laughs> getting. <laughs> 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 so excuse us for a moment while we uh, turn our horn, but I, I really <laughs> think Shameless it's a shameless plug but it's nonetheless a valuable book i I wouldn't uh mention it if i didn't think so
0: on monday when the legislature took this up and and finally sent it forward to the governor as you said they made a few adjustments um i think it's a a kind of a a sugar coating um there were two things that really struck me about it one was that uh, they said well uh, there's going to be a recommended curriculum but. Uh, various local school boards, including charter schools, can can adopt can adapt or create their own ethnic studies curricula. So that sounded like a, a sop to local choice. And then there was mm-hmm. the thing you just said about how it's not supposed to. Whatever you teach is not supposed to promote religious doctrine uh, and uh, not promote any bias or bigotry or discrimination. Uh, which I think satisfied some of the concerns or seemed to. But what strikes me about this is that. Um, Even with those slight softenings, what you've got here is you have the authority of the state of California injecting a lethal toxin into the body politic through the children, endorsing this uh, progressive critical theory, critical studies approach to history. Um, Whether every single student gets it or not, the state has still taken its position in the culture wars, and it is going to promote this approach to history and to the meaning of human life um, how can the state get away with taking sides on these kind of contentious ideological issues
2: well you know the problem is once you have public schools and taxpayers dollars then you have politics and once right. you have politics you don't have the pluralism that exists in the marketplace or in regular civil society you have winners and losers um by force by coercion mm-hmm. and so the people who are well organized and well placed are going to dominate mm-hmm. and in higher education in this particular field of ethnic studies these uh older marxists and identity politics people dominate the scene mm-hmm. and have since the 1960s when this yeah, they have discipline came into existence so you're right that this is a state-endorsed model, and yes, and 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 they're putting the imprimatur of the government on it. Right,
0: that's my point, and mm-hmm. that
2: is your point. I think it's a very valid one. The other thing is, most districts don't have the confidence the energy, the wherewithal to invent their own curriculum. Oh, certainly not. So, if you go to a group of teachers and say, okay, we're not giving you any extra money, but on your own time, please come up with the books, Mm -hmm. the course sequence, the quizzes, the this, the that, or we have one that's pre-ready, you know, Mm -hmm. already ready for you and is uh, signed sealed and delivered by the state of california think
0: software you know you set the default setting yes you can go into the preferences and change the options but the default Mm -hmm. setting prevails over everything and david you know you know a lot about schooling i was going to ask you david just on a broad brush is there an alternative to this kind of state dominated education
1: well of course under the covid 19 shutdown schools are not open and parents i've been Uh, desperate to figure out what to do, and so there's been uh, a real growth in private schooling, homeschooling, online learning, none of which is ideal necessarily, Um, but there is a realization by, I think, most parents, especially the, the mothers, that the school system is not accountable to them, it's accountable to the political system, which is more clearly that of the control of the teachers' unions, Um, I do think that one of the other problems with this being California is that California, because of the size of the school system, has a huge impact on the content of textbooks because publishers want to produce textbooks that will be used everywhere. And so this is going to have a big thumb on the scale of the standards throughout the country. And of course, the basic point of this ideology is that racism causes everything. Uh,
2: That's. uh, Right. So, my my granddaughter just started college. And uh, so, first class, she comes in, and what do they have up on the screen? A quiz to self reveal how racist you are. That's right.
1: Exactly. (laughs) Wow. And again, it, it, it gets back to this reigning ideology of progressivism that is treating people as members of groups, that people don't have their own agency, Mm -hmm. they don't have a moral sense, they can't discern things. And those that do um, rise up because of merit, um, clearly are essentially adopting white nationalism or whiteness or whatever you want to call it, the white mind, some people say. Um, And it's really folly, because it's like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, About the uh, African American Museum at the Smithsonian, it's this view that um, normal culture, traditional values should be abandoned.
2: Objectivity; these are all toxic whiteness. Right? Crazy. Right? They're universally valid ways to approach the world and get ahead and tackle nature and. Yeah. So I mean, the idea of achieving something
1: and success is considered to be a sellout. But I mean, you know. There's so many ways to refute this stuff. I mean, the people who, pr- who propose that are claiming that their measure, their view has merit and that, that adopting it is going to create success of some sort. And of course, that's just incoherent because by the very nature of their claim, there is no such thing.
2: It's, 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 a, it's an even greater problem in some ways because they believe to debate them to try to argue with them in terms mm-hmm. of logic and fact is part of the illegitimate oppressive mm-hmm. system.
1: It's a recognition so, that there's another view.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is no other view as far as they're concerned.
1: That's so right. why debate? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. yeah, The
0: commitment to free exchange is itself it's considered cough. a form of false consciousness. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, and one, we've seen of the, this be- one of
1: the other factors in the in the, in the different racial groups whether portrayed. Is that Asians are overrepresented in tech, which is immoral? You know the court case at Harvard is probably the most recent example of this in higher education. Uh, but you could say you know African Americans overrepresented in the NBA. so that's that's immoral. So instead of paying LeBron James more than me to be a basketball player, is some sort of an inequity. And so, the whole thing is David, I think you convoluted. should be
2: conscripted into professional basketball and forced to play. People and would be very disappointed. We should be forced to watch yeah. you.
1: <laughs> I think people would pay me not to play. Well, like, yeah. <laughs> possible. Listen, one thing I just want to
0: point out, I mean, we are, you know, we we may sound like we're grousing, but actually there's a thread running through all of what we've said thus far. We're trying to actually analyze the dynamics of this uh, ideological phenomenon as expressed in the K through 12 curriculum. And I think, Bill Evers, uh, one of our goals and one of your goals is to equip people with the resources of mind to diagnose and analyze some of these things. Can you talk a little bit about your uh, relevant uh, bibliography you've recently made available?
2: Well, I talked a little bit about the race part of it. It's got uh, some other things in it. It has one on anti-Semitism. It's a very heavily written about thing, and I made a big effort to sort through a huge literature and pick out the best things. Um, It's often just thought, oh, it's just hatred of Jews, okay, for no reason. But it's often more complicated in that, as I mentioned, envy participates in it. Uh, cultural rivalry, say, in the ancient world between the Hellenistic world and Jewish values. Uh, succession in the Roman Empire also figured in the ancient world. But it, it, it a huge thing in the modern world, so we're talking about from 1870 to the present, is envy of successful jews after the jewish emancipation so uh, then there's one on police reform which could not be a more topical subject right but uh so so my bibliography on police reform heavily discusses police unions now it's interesting this is so my main field of course is education and in education there is very little scholarly literature on the teachers unions Uh, My former colleague at Hoover, Terry Moe, has written on it, but hardly any other people. There's very few books or anything. So the um, police unions are sort of similar. I mean, there are some articles. There really aren't good books on the subject. And uh, so, but anyway, we gather in this, I gather in this bibliography a ton of stuff on unions, and you can see things like as collective bargaining kicks in, um, unanswered police compl- complaints about the police go way up and all, all sorts of interesting things that go on. And the front page of the Los Angeles Times today is all about how the police unions in California blocked uh, reforms in the state legislature, right. which, which just Stein. ended on Monday. It was mm-hmm. the last uh, day of session. And here was this opening, here was this huge demand from the public to improve things now. Doesn't mean every proposed reform is right, but basically they hobbled everything. They mm-hmm. stalled. They misdirected. They—they right. <laughs> they are brilliant at it. But you know, uh, people need to realize that public employee unions are very self-serving and they don't serve the public in any way. They give
1: special privileges to their members. Right. I might add that in the in the uh, upcoming fall issue of our journal, the Independent right. Review, the cover Excellent article. article. Yeah. is on police unions and how they have been used to shield people from accountability and also to soak the, the taxpayer as far as funding pensions and all sorts of other things. But especially the issue of accountability. Yes. And people right. are, are concerned and people are rightfully concerned for people being held accountable in any field, but right. the the current issue of course is is how blacks are treated by police. Um, and yet you hear very little about the fact that police unions are th- not the only factor but one of the dominant factors in the accountability issue
2: so George Floyd when he was killed when he was murdered there were there was one guy leaning on his neck but there were other policemen involved right there one of them was a black so this isn't mentioned very often and it doesn't you know I don't know what that exact means, but it means at, one, uh, at least one thing is that we need to look at police training, police methods per se, and not just at race relations. That's right. So, so my, if la- racism, my last, my if last racism topic is
1: the only criteria, you'll get nowhere.
2: Yeah. So, my last topic in this bibliography is on poverty and the welfare state. And so, in a sense, one of the cures that some people propose for Uh, the current crisis in race relations and related matters is vast expansion of the welfare state. So this bibliography goes into how that's pretty problematic. There hasn't been a lot of success in the programs of the welfare state. A lot of times the welfare state has been used just to buy votes. And you can look at, say, the programs of the New Deal. Uh, One of Independent Institute's top scholars, William Chuck has shown that the New Deal spending went to areas where the Democrats were in trouble and not to the areas of greatest need. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is hardly confined to the New Deal.
1: If you actually one of a again, another shameless plug, Uh, we have a book called The Voluntary City, and it shows that consistently, the success of overcoming abject poverty and crime and other urban problems is when people were free to solve them. And in most urban areas you've got many of these communities facing everything run by the government. You've got government health care and schools and parks and housing and what have you and little opportunity for business development or entrepreneurship or or mutual aid societies or anything like that. But the the case is is just overwhelming. Uh, And if you look at these different ethnic groups, why do certain ethnic groups uh, uplift themselves out of abject poverty and others not? And, of course, Tom Sowell is the leading expert on this. But this is not as if it's some sort of far-out, undocumented approach to the issue. It's really the issue of people being free to improve their lives. So Sowell's
2: book ethnic America is filled with that. And there's a lot of it in those other books.
0: Tremendous book. Yeah. So, um, you know, what's, partly what's going on here is that these ideological currents are getting accelerated in the reaction to some of these shootings, um, which have, you know, taken over the news probably in part because people are so fed up under pandemic conditions and then any little tinderbox, uh, makes it worse. Um, it's kind of stunning really. Um, however, Uh, to look at some of these incidents, um, many of which are indeed very troubling, where African Americans seem to be singled out. But then sometimes the fervor to make everything fit into a kind of progressive so-called social justice framework um, seems to override the need to look at the facts and carefully evaluate due process and so forth. And not only that, um, but even where, uh, in fact, African American citizens were unjustly treated by police, which, you know, I think they have been in many cases. Even where that is the case, uh, then there seemed to be a bunch of opportunism around these events, which has broken out in looting and violence uh, in Chicago, well, for Minneapolis originally in Chicago, now Kenosha uh, and elsewhere. It's kind of stunning to see um, the uh, rationalizations being offered for this kind of violence uh, which seems to uh, accompany th- these protests or flow out of them it's hard sometimes to tell where one leaves off and the other begins but i wondered if any, either of you saw that thing uh, that was on npr it was a, a interview uh, with vicky osterweil who wrote this book in defense of looting um, which is featured on one of their podcasts and promoted on npr.org uh, uh, she says that looting is a strategic resistance tactic that has been used for centuries to fight injustice. Uh, and the NPR you know, interviewer is giving this a very sympathetic uh, hearing in the interview. Uh, and and the, uh, the author goes on to say, looting demonstrates that without police and without state oppression, we can have things for free. And that those who oppose looting are driven by anti-blackness and contempt for poor people who want to live a better life, Osterweil claims. Um, can this really be the case on tax supported national public radio?
1: Well, I I mean, she is claiming that, uh, mass, mass expropriation of uh, property is just looting IE uh, is is, she calls it sharing for free. Mm -hmm. And it's a form of reparations. Uh, one of the obvious questions is, If ex-looter gets a big screen TV and looter number B does not, does looter number B have the right to take looter A's big screen TV? (laughs) Wait, 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 looters against looters? And where does this end?
2: Expropriate the expropriators.
1: Right. And so, this is, again, it's another rationalization for the sort of collectivist approach to things.
2: Well, you know, I think we should go with the Ten Commandments again, thou shalt not steal. Right. Exactly, right. Uh, But, you know, remember the Yippie book, steal this book, right?
1: Yeah. Abby Hoffman. Although
2: he he did want you to pay for it.
1: Well, I mean, the reality of this is that it's not free.
2: People had to spend
1: money to build these things. And these are livelihoods of people. So if you, if, you, if you burn down a building or a store, you're destroying the livelihood of people and you're endangering the lives of people in addition from the very act. Uh, so the people who've been killed or seriously harmed by these riots, uh, the social justice warriors don't seem to care a whit about. Not at all. Man. And I would go further to say that property rights, I mean, the attack on property rights is, you know, it's a Marxist view, the Marxists are not the only ones that had that view, but that's the current justification. But I would, go, I would go further to say that property rights are human rights.
0: Absolutely. And
1: that um, if you don't own your own body, if you don't own the food that you put in your mouth, you can't survive, you can't live. And hence, since only individuals exist, if individuals can't own property to support and sustain life, then uh, life, human life can't exist. And so the whole thing is incoherent.
2: I would like to echo David on this and even go one step farther. And that is to say, we we, we can't do without property rights. Even socialist societies have mm-hmm. rules whereby yes. some bureaucrat is in True. charge of allocating physical goods to some person or another. It's a kind of unjust property right. The point that David is making is that People in the earliest days brought things into regular use. They got cattle, they got dogs, they got little plots of land. These expanded. As long as that was going on justly, they were fairly trading with other people, honestly trading with other people. It it grows up into the situation we have today. And if there are things that were done unfairly, then the... the, uh, if there's a stolen like take take the jews that were stolen from at the time of the german national socialism and you you hear about artworks or furniture or one thing or another that gets discovered later okay give it back to them but some poor immigrant in a downtown of a city who has just built up a business mm-hmm. to go burn that down is the most evil injustice imaginable it's unbelievable yeah
0: And many Um, of the victims have been African-American business owners in these riots recently. That's right. But whatever color they are, it's just It doesn't matter, yeah. That's right.
1: There's also a term called the tragedy of the commons, which is uh, the idea that if you don't have property, clearly defined property rights, uh, resources of some sort are held in common, which is, you know, sort of a communist perspective that there are no individual rights to assets at all but the problem with the tragedy of the of uh, the com- commons is that since no one owns it and we all own it in common you create an incentive for people to fight over who sets the rules as bill and and
2: over and overuse overuse
1: the, abuse the asset. pollution degradation right and uh, the you know, there are many different sort of stereotype views about uh, someone who is tilling a field and they have no right to it, uh, and so someone sends their cows through to eat the corn, so why should the person till the field in the first place? Right. And mm-hmm. so, property rights are intrinsic, be needed for civilization, for society, for civil just, society. They're
2: necessary, yes. Right. And, and you know, there's just so much sloppy thinking here. Uh, there's a slogan, property is theft. That doesn't make any sense because you can only have theft if somehow somebody That's is right. taking the thing from right. somebody who's legitimately holding it. That's uh, right. You know, if 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 the workers take over a factory and they control it as a kind of cooperative, not, I'm not saying they should, but then they're kind of claiming a property right. In That's it. right. And exactly. and. and, and you know, then what about when half of them die of old age? Who can come in? You know, that, that's a property rights problem. Even if they form a voluntary cooperative, it's a property rights problem that has to be addressed. So any socialist who thinks they can get out of these problems with some kind of magical thinking, they're wrong. Because they're going to get out of it through tyranny and despotism.
1: Well, let's, let's take Portland, for example. Someone uh, is an arsonist and burns down a store. Uh, Now, that store was owned by the person who bought or built it, whatever, but the arsonist is claiming, no, it's my store, and I can use it as I want. I can destroy it if I want. So it's another, it's a claim of property. The question is, is it a just claim? It's not. And it's not. I mean, it's basically just using violence against innocent people. Exactly. And of course, that's what the Nazis did do against the Jews. Exactly. And the Soviets did against the Jews and many other ethnic groups.
2: And they the did it against is, the, the wealthy peasants. And right, they the did history it against sold us. The
1: so, Turks did it against the Armenians. I mean, the list goes on and on. Yeah. And so... And the,
2: and the Turks mobilized envy yes, against the successful Armenians. That's exactly right. So mm-hmm. it wasn't just that the Armenians were Christians. Yes. They were successful Christians. That's right.
0: So this approach, which basically tries to fit everything into uh, the parameters of oppressed oppressor relationship is this kind of a proto or neo or modern Marxism. It seems to be a kind of intellectual compulsion among a lot of people uh, in the intellectual classes in North America now. It, to me, there's something similar between the curricular thing we were talking about before and uh, this matter of justifying looting in both cases and in many others there's this compulsive effort to uh, force the facts to fit this ideological framework. Um, It's a really uh, worrisome trend because we're talking about people who are sitting comfortably uh, behind an NPR microphone or a university podium or whatever, and they're, they're basically feeding people these ideas, which you've just been enumerating, which then lead to action and violence. um, And somehow the people who can foment this seem to feel that they can get away with it. Um, I would encourage uh, anyone who could to check out our website. We have a really interesting article by William Watkins on uh, Jacob Blake uh, and a forced narrative about uh, the the riots in Kenosha. This is on independent.org. And I also wanted to point out that Jacob Blake's family uh, promptly condemned the violence and the looting that's right uh, but their voice got drowned out
1: well many of these incidents um, have been shown to to not fit the narrative I mean they don't they don't right. live up to the truth I mean for example the issue of George Floyd um, the county uh, medical examiner has has issued his report and the report shows that not only was Floyd in the car complaining about not being able to breathe, but that he had a fatal amount of fentanyl and methamphetamine in his system. Mm
2: -hmm. So I'm gonna gently disagree with you, David. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, It's quite possible that those drugs that he had large amounts of Mm -hmm. were causing him to feel he couldn't breathe. No, I think that's right. But the the proximate cause of his death was choking.
1: It could be, I'm simply pointing out that the That's narrative right. it's a complication doesn't yeah. right it's i mean this is the county medical examiner's claim and and the medical examiner also claimed that he did not die of of suffocation but the point re, the point i'm simply making is that in many of these instances people leap to conclusion because it fits they, this narrative i mean for example right? the idea that property is theft and uh, so, you know, robberies, or redistribution, or reparations, has been a theme of many of the heist movies, going back for decades. So the heist movie is the the robbers are the heroes, and mm. they're essentially going after the capitalist or the casino owner or something, mm-hmm. and this is a, this is noble and it's 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 uh, it's cool and all the rest of it. And this goes back for decades because the elite culture. Has bought into this view, and I think part of it is uh, relates to this sort of secular secularization of of ethics, um, which means there are no ethics, and it's simply moral relativism. which you can right. get away with, the end justifies the means, and so on and so forth. But of and course, has, we're
2: talking about elites and their values. Yes. Right. How about across the bridge in in San Francisco? talk about uh, talk about someone who got got caught in the act
0: yeah i was talking about the people you know sitting in behind their podiums and universities spouting progressive socialism but hey right across the bay nobody can go out and get haircuts except for the speaker of the house of representatives <laughs> the question is uh you know is this criticism fair of nancy pelosi or are we just being a little snipers here
1: well i think i think both are the case, but I think it is telling. And uh, as Angela Cotavia has pointed out, there is a political class, and the political class wants to make the decisions to rule over the so called country class, which is the bulk mm-hmm. of the population. And they don't want their views questioned, which fits in with the, the narrative that we're talking about. And in Pelosi's case, for those who haven't heard, uh, she had a uh, a shampoo and dry blow dry uh, in a shuttered hair salon Mm -hmm. which is against the law and she wasn't wearing a mask and in response to being caught on surveillance cameras of this her response is but i was following what i thought were the rules of the salon and the salon owner said that's ridiculous and so here she's caught again in one of these situations in which the rules don't apply to her because she's part of the elite
0: and, of course, the question arises whether that rule should be enforced in the first place or not.
1: Uh, certainly. That's right. And, and the, the, the woman who owned the salon um, uh, has been interviewed. And, of course, she's saying that she has been shut down since March.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And they were going to reopen in July. And she, she complied with all the ordinances to be able to do that. And then they changed they their mind. So she says in her, in her area that there are no businesses open. They're all shuttered. Right. The people are leaving, their customers are leaving. So who benefits from this? Well, the people like Pelosi don't have to pay the price. And so, so I think we should, get
2: back, we should get back to your point, David, about a kind of class analysis or caste analysis or group analysis of this right. and Angelo Cotovia's uh, insight that there are some people, and that would include the three of us, who can work from their homes easily right? Uh, we, We're lucky. W- we don't have to run a lathe in a factory. We don't have to load boxes into the back of a truck. We don't have to shampoo hair. We're white-collar people who are merchants of ideas, analysts of ideas. And it is, mine is very blue and David's is likewise blue. But the point is that not that you have a more academic tie than the two of us. The point is that many of the people who are telling other people what to do, the regular people, the man and woman mm-hmm. on the street, what to do, the hair salon owners, what to do, are people whose salaries and income are not threatened. They're on the taxpayer's dime. Right. They have a, or they have academic tenure. They have something that can't really be taken
1: away. The, schools, the, the school teacher unions are yeah, paid Yeah, the school anyway. teachers union, they're getting right. paid. Right. I mean... I don't want to overdo
2: how how well off the three of us are, because if nobody donates independent institute, we go out of business. We're not on the taxpayer's dime. We need you all. Yes. But the point is, there is a class difference between the person that can work at home in his his or her pajamas and still get paid and, and often is in a position to tell the rest of the country what to do and the people who are the the uh, ones that suffer from this uh diktat from the top
1: Yep, that's exactly right and i think that one of the reasons why this video of pelosi went so viral so quickly is because of the fact that people are upset about being shut down and they see this hypocrisy and they they want to uh essentially see their own views validated but also, they want to express their distaste for this absurdity. And uh, Pelosi hasn't even admitted she's wrong. And that's part... She says, oh, I was set, I was set up,
2: which is completely false. Yes, It's very clear from the emails that her staff set up the appointment. That's right.
1: That's right. Well, the, her spokesman, Drew Hamill, claimed Pelosi was following the rules as presented to her, which, of course, is preposterous. Because Pelosi knows full well, that, I mean, she's, she just talked about people not wearing masks are evil. Yeah.
2: She right? had to put down no. the Republicans for, for not going masks every moment. And there she is, cavorting around inside a building with um, and close to other people without a mask on.
1: So, the connection here between Pelosi and the riots and the curriculum is becomes pretty clear. Yeah. It's this view that some elite is going to impose rules on people and they're going to use a narrative to keep people in their place. And fortunately, more and more people are being clued into this. And, you know, uh, Graham asked me earlier about uh, schools. We have a book coming out called Really Good Schools by James Tooley, which is about desperately poor people in developing countries creating their own private schools for the poor, and essentially it was virtually no money. And so, if more and more people can see that they don't have to depend upon the kid, the teachers' union educational blob to get their kids educated, that's going to change a lot of things, and that that lesson is not unique to education. It's true in the whole the cross section of society. So
2: and I think it sort of
1: represents knows. the person who's trying to impose it and the hypocrite that she is.
2: But I think Graham was also getting at the idea of, well, maybe these rules in the hair salons are counterproductive, unnecessary and stupid. So I have a proposal. We will stop retweeting and reposting on Facebook uh, Nancy Pelosi going through this hair salon. (laughs) And in return, she can liberate us from this tyranny of all this lockdown stuff that's not needed. There you go. I mean,
0: Hairgate is going to be a big deal for a long time.
1: I, I think that's right. But again, I mean, Pelosi's, Pelosi's husband, uh, you know, Paul, I've met, and he's a successful businessman. And there are many people in the Pelosi family who are quite admirable people. Now, she is the daughter of uh, the former mayor of Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Comes from a political family, but she is extremely wealthy. So are the measures that. Uh, of redistributing wealth, does she want uh, Antifa to come to her houses and burn it down? I don't think so. So, I don't think so. We've got to have some sort of standard that's universal, which is the idea of the rule of law, which applies to every person. Mm -hmm. Uh, One other point I'll mention just briefly is that uh, technically, we're all African-Americans. We all came out of Africa Mm -hmm. originally and the idea of different colors, uh, skin tones. Uh, Indian Indians have dark skin, so do Polynesians. Now, Indian Indians who come to America have been very successful. So why are they not discriminated against and suffering the same way that other dark-skinned people are? It must be some other factor other than racism And that's what I think we're getting at, is that it's culture, it's opportunity, it's eliminating government barriers, and not to socialize things so people are kept down.
0: We probably need to bring this to a landing pretty soon here, but uh, how about one last little incendiary question, uh, which is emerging uh, sort of indirectly out of uh, the questions being submitted by our ThinkSpot friends. Uh, When uh, these riots and looting and so forth erupted, politicians you know, reacted to them in different ways. Um, President Trump, of course, is always talking. Um, Joe Biden um, seemed a little quiet at first, and then he seemed to also condemn the looting. Uh, I'm not sure what Kamala Harris has said. Um, do you think that uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have really been as forthrightly condemning the violence and looting as Jacob Blake's family has?
2: i I don't don't think so no it's interesting that he condemns looting and violence but he never condemns looters or killers or Mm. assaulters it's he's trying to make it more abstract so if you're a potential voter who's engaged in some kind of nefarious act doesn't want you to feel targeted by him and I certainly noticed that in his rhetoric. Yeah, he doesn't. Kamala he doesn't name the groups
1: that are organized. Right. Essentially, domestic terrorists.
2: Yeah, he won't name the groups that are
0: behind it. So you. That's do true. Wonder, he will not. I mean, and yeah, I
1: think that I'm... I think, like Kamala Harris, Biden and his handlers um, are following the polls very closely and putting yeah. their finger up to the wind. And as it changes course, they'll adapt to that to try to stay ahead of it. I think that actually, they've fallen behind. Whether they can catch up again is another story. But I think that uh, what Bill is saying also is key is that they're not willing to take the step to actually hold people accountable. Those people who actually did the crimes accountable for their acts. It's it's a general... Well, they have made some
2: suggestions about prosecuting people. But the interesting thing is in these cities, the Democratic officials have generally said, well, unless you know we catch you murdering somebody, we're just going to view it as protest hijinks and we're not going to do anything. Yeah, right? protest and hijinks they've, they've is a dangerous this. concept. They've said this mm-hmm. explicitly. And so, you know, as uh, famous essayist Andrew Sullivan has said, if you tell people you're not serious about law enforcement, they'll take it as a license to disobey... Mm-hmm. The law. And uh, so, so here the, the mayor the city.
1: of Portland, his condo building was attacked. They tried to burn the building down, they weren't able to. But so he's now relocated, I think, to a beach house.
0: Oh, but, and, he, and he's, you know, quite is he, liberal. Liberal. Is he, is he holding the people
1: accountable who tried to burn that building down? Man. I haven't seen it
0: as always. The people who most need the protection of the clearly enforced rule of law are those who are least fortunate and most vulnerable. That's Um, right. Exactly. And we um, we encourage uh, through a lot of our research, a clarity about the rule of law that equitably protects everybody and private property, which is probably the best guarantor of human dignity that we have found historically. Um, It's been pleasure to talk with my colleagues, uh, Bill Evers and David Thoreau. Thanks, gentlemen, for being part of a kind of freewheeling conversation. Thanks also to ThinkSpot uh, for being our co-sponsor today. We really appreciate their partnership. Uh, We invite you to visit uh, independent.org to take a look at those book lists that um, Bill Evers mentioned on the various subjects like uh, racism and civil rights uh, and uh, social justice. I forget everything you said, Bill, but... Uh, There's quite a a wonderful list of best books on socialism, too.
1: Right. And just go to our homepage at independent.org and you'll find them
0: you'll find it yeah i mean basically what we are trying to offer uh to everybody on this call and to the public at large uh, is a perspective that really is grounded in rigorous thinking uh, research and evidence it's not just grousing um but we're not just pussyfooting around either these things have real world world meaning and so we invite you to join us uh in our work uh thank you for watching independent outlook thank you david thank you and bill thank
1: you and thank you thanks
0: And thank you, thanks, Vat, and we'll see you all next time. Take care from the Independent Institute. Bye-bye.